0: The Other Side Podcast's mission is to discuss important cultural and social issues relating to race, culture, gender, and equality. Welcome. In partnership with the Columbus Dispatch, The Other Side Podcast is featuring a series of special podcast episodes called In Black and White. The series is devoted to discussing race and its impact on society. Dr. Terrence Dean and I will be interviewing scholars, community leaders, and artists in relevant fields to try to answer some of the most important questions related to race and the Black experience. And joining us today is Jewel Woods, founder and clinical director of the nonprofit organization Male Behavioral Health and the Center for Men and Boys. Jewel is the has a master of social work degree and also a master's degree in sociology. Thank you for joining us today. It's my pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me.
1: Thank you, Mr. Woods. I, I'm excited to have this conversation with you. I, I came across um, your material um, as I was doing research on um, the effects of COVID nineteen, mm. um, particularly around Black men and young boys and um, the rate the rise in suicide. Mm. Um, for men and I was shocked by that, that the statistics stated that um, there have been this increase and I wondered how were black men and young boys dealing with um, the COVID-19 pandemic and then now as we're coming out of it uh, right. hopefully um, the impact it has had on them those who have families those who may be uh, raising families um, those who have other stressors and other um, areas that may not have been addressed. Yes. Um, have you all done any like con- insight or w- work on that to, to understand how the, the pandemic, particularly the um, underlying issues of health for black men, but we didn't talk about mental health. Yes. Can yes. you talk about that? Like why, how did we sure. miss that part? Sure.
2: No, I, uh, there's a lot there. So uh, first and foremost, thank you, for the opportunity and I, I really appreciate the question. So COVID-19, I'll talk about it in a couple of different ways. Uh, at its core was framed as a public health issue mm-hmm. uh, and no doubt because of its impact, made a lot of people think about questions about morbidity and mortality. Uh, the reality is whenever you think about questions about morbidity and mortality, you're also uh, in the realm of uh, psychological and emotional issues. And so COVID-19 just uh, as a frame literally only got the attention around public health issues. And there was not that uh, immediate sort of concern about the the mental health and emotional health impact of that. So that's one of the things that's important because, uh, you know, what we know from a public health perspective is that we can, you know, take a blood test to kind of figure out how a person's doing. We can get an x-ray to see how a person's doing, but there are no blood tests for the amount of anxiety. There are no x-rays that can get to tell you the level of depression or grief. Mm, mm. And so on one level, it's just an easier way to get at how a person is doing is through these sort of public health uh, measures. Mm -hmm. But the mental health measures really only come when uh, people actually disclose what's happening in their lives. Mm -hmm. And so to talk about men and boys for a a moment, uh, what we know is that men and boys in general, uh, African-American men and boys, Mm -hmm. I would say, and men and and boys of color uh, really have not had a history of trusting the mental health uh, field mm-hmm. uh, in general there's a lot of stigma associated with uh, not just mental health but for men and boys because of the role of gender
0: yeah, there's an yeah, association
2: yeah. of you know not wanting to be vulnerable not wanting to disclose and oftentimes you know for good reasons because that historically has been used against us we've never had the freedom to be Correct. considered you know not right. right so if you combine the fact that on one level uh, covid-19 was really just thought of or framed as a public health initiative yeah. Uh, that it really was not immediately uh, concerned with the mental health things, and then to your point about its impact on men and boys and African American men and boys, there's just a long history of not uh, feeling as if that's a space where they can go to. And so what we began to see in private practice, and I'll just use the words of the men uh, in particular, that you know ended up coming in. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were saying, "Look, we've had these issues all the time. We've had these questions all the time, mm-hmm. but..." what COVID-19 did was it removed all the distractions. And so now I'm forced Mm. to deal with those things Mm. because I'm sequestered in my house right Mm. now. What I'm left with is my mind. And so uh, before maybe I could run and go to an Ohio state football game, or I could go to the bar, or I could do all these sort of things that on one level would distract um, or maybe even avoid, you know, some of these pressing issues. Mm -hmm. COVID-19 removed all those uh, barriers and Mm. men and boys were left with self. And that You know, uh, with an undisciplined mind, with uh, unsettled spirit, lends itself to a lot of anxiety, depression uh, and trauma. And so that's when we started to see a lot of uh, men and boys started to come in Mm. uh, for the first time in their lives. And so uh, COVID-19 was in many ways a really uh, important watershed
1: when it comes to mental health in African-American community. So so in some regard, it helped to get boys and men to you who probably um, not necessarily may have sought your, your services, right? Well, it's <laughs> so it's a blessing and a curse, right?
2: <laughs> well, it's an interesting point, but, you know, one of the things that I, I love the way in which you frame that, because it is a blessing and curse, because mm-hmm. one of the things that happens with men and boys, and I share with men uh, and boys all the time that, you know, one of the first things that I have to pay attention to is not what's going on, but like, why now? Mm-hmm. And so because, okay. you know, COVID-19, like you said, you know, was this particular time uh, and because, you know, men and boys come, were coming in, the average man in, in particular has no interest in going in and sharing his problems. So by <laughs> right. the time they come in, they typically do a little bit worse than what they think they are. And so the, the, the positive is, right, that they came in for the first time. But the curse is sometimes it was only when they are in real crisis. Mm. And so one of the things that I have to do as a clinician is to simply mm. be able to evaluate if they're in the appropriate level of care. Because the reality is they might, the disease course might be even more so they might need to be uh, in something like, it, you know, intensive inpatient or perhaps right. even hospitalized. So that's the thing. The reality was that by the time those men and boys came in and COVID, things were had progressed a long, long time. Mm. But the benefit was you could start a process. Uh, you could, you know, um, uh, be about the business of uh, diagnosing and dispositioning properly. Mm-hmm. Things that I don't take for granted. Honestly, yeah. uh, there's this term that, you know, we're very serious about. Uh, In male behavior health called clinical justice, uh, which is the idea that African-American men and boys are uh, properly diagnosed, properly dispositioned and properly treated. And by properly diagnosed it's because too often men and boys in general and African-American men and boys in particular are over diagnosed in certain areas, particularly when it comes to psychotic issues and personality issues and underdiagnosed when it comes to mood disorders and when it comes to disposition, too oftentimes, men and boys in general, and particularly African American men and boys of colors, are dispositioned to levels of care against their will. Mm. And this last area is that they're properly treated. So, for all those reasons, no matter how I get men and boys, I'm thankful to get them because I know it's just very important, particularly when they it's their first time, uh, you know,
0: accessing mental health care. And so, we accept the real burden of trying to get it right. I, I wanted to ask you about. I'm glad that you you mentioned that because. How do how does a person uh, determine whether just regular everyday stress yeah. and the things that we deal with? Um, how do you know when it's time to go talk to someone and seek out a professional? Because a lot of people just well, you know, COVID was tough for everybody. Sure. Everybody had a hard time. So how how as a black man, how would I know that the things that I'm feeling and I'm dealing with are things that I should seek treatment for and not just things that everyone deals with and I should just, you know, just kind of bear through it and, 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 and deal with it, I oh, guess. It's a wonderful question and it happens uh,
2: all the time. And, and with your permission, i like to talk about it in a Absolutely. couple of different ways. So from a strictly mental health perspective and a psychiatric perspective, the answer to that question is only when it affects your level of functioning. So, when it comes to, like, diagnosis, you know, there's entrance and exit sort of criteria. And so, Mm -hmm. the entrance thing is that it has to occur for a certain amount of time. It has to, you know, correspond with a certain level of constellation of symptoms. And uh, uh, on the exit uh, side, that it really does impact certain things like your ability to function um, and, you know, it causes distress or dysfunction. So, on one level, the answer to the question of, you know, how am I doing, is this just normal stress or... Uh, am I suffering from anxiety is on one level, just in terms of psychiatric diagnosis is it's the degree to which is impacting your ability to function. So if you just know, for example, that this is just not me, right? That is over the course of the last two or three weeks, I'm not sleeping right. Uh, I'm not eating right. Uh, That my mind is excessively ruminating on these things. Mm -hmm. That is just a little bit uh, more than just you suffering from some stress, which to your point, humanity, if you're human, uh, the core of our humanity is, you know, struggle and and sacrifice. But there's another part of this, though, that uh, I think is uh, really important to your question, especially for men and boys. Uh, To simply ask the question about, you know, when should we, uh, you know, uh, know what's going wrong with us really speaks to just a general level of lack of, uh, I would even say, emotional intelligence and understanding that we don't have. So, for example, part of the problem with mental health is that it's only defined in its sort of crisis mode. Mm -hmm. And so, and I'll just give an example. If I were to ask you, you know, how often should you go get your you know, oil changed in your car? You might have an answer for that. If I ask you, how often you know, should you go to the dentist to get your teeth cleaned? Right. You might have an answer for that. Right. Now, when I ask you, how often should you go see a mental health professional? Right. Only when as needed. Right. But the reality is nobody would go to get their car only when to the, uh, get their car fixed when the, the engine was on fire. Nobody would go to the dentist just when their teeth had abscesses. So to your point, this whole question of like, when should we go or how are we doing? Part of our problem is that we haven't defined mental health and access to outpatient treatment services Mm -hmm. as prevention and not just intervention. Mm -hmm. Because to your point, the reality is, and this is just a life course perspective. If you, you know, uh, have gone through life and you've, you know, suffered a loss, Mm -hmm. lost a job, Mm -hmm. uh, had some, you know, drama, uh, all those opportunities for you to check in to say, how am I doing, right? right? The same way you would where we get these, what, upgrades on our computers and all those sort of things, something that just checks our system. So I'm saying that this question, like, uh, you know, for men that we ask it is, when do I know I'm doing wrong? Well, heck, you know, have you ever gone to see a therapist? You might not know at all. Right. Hmm. And so it becomes a real opportunity
0: uh, but, for... But a lot of people think so, you only go see a therapist when you're, like, on the verge of a breakdown. Exactly. And if yes. you tell... Um, <laughs> Just yes. sharing a little bit about my own personal experience. I've, I've sought out a therapist, had a therapist. Mm. It, it was a great experience, but I remember telling people about mm. it, and they'd be like, "What's? Are you okay? Mm-hmm. You, you feeling okay? You?" Need, and I'm mm-hmm. like, "Nah, it's cool. I just wanted." To, but people mm. sort of assume that if you say I'm yes. going to go talk to a, a therapist or yes. a, a psychiatrist, that there's something yeah. like you're on the, you're suicidal. Yes, because that's the only reason why. You would need to go talk to a mental health professional. And
2: particularly for males. And so, again, uh, the idea that uh, brilliant, young, functioning, you know, those sort of uh, ideas about stability would want to see a therapist suggests that something has to be extremely wrong. So Mm -hmm. to your point, that's it, right? Particularly if a man is getting to the point where they're going to be vulnerable, the concern is, oh, my gosh, he's going to go postal, and so, for example, I'll get share with you my, in my early uh, you know, clinical career, I used to have <clears throat> always ended up being the dude that, you know, even when I wasn't in private practice where I'd get all the caseloads sent to me. And one of my first earliest uh, experiences as a young clinician was, you know, working with a, a guy and he was crying in the uh, lobby area mm-hmm. and the, the, the people that called the police. And because six foot four, you know, truck driver, white. Right. And I'm like, he's going through a divorce. Why wouldn't he be crying? Yeah. So to your point, there's just this idea Mm -hmm. of uh, concern when we don't see men comport themselves in a certain way where things might get critical. And there's good reason for that. So I don't want to belabor that. The idea that men uh, and we can talk about gender and masculinity and mental health, but, you know, men not being right has historically not uh, been a good thing. For women and girls, for society and all that stuff. So the idea that people would have a real risk or lethality uh, reaction to men talking about mental health uh, has you know, larger cultural uh, ramifications. But uh, just going back to this thing, I mean, if you're a guy and I just ask guys this question, you know, what are your top three uh, positive coping skills, top three negative coping skills? If you can
0: answer best, if you cannot answer a basic question like that, then you probably need to see a therapist. Well, wait a minute, doctors. I don't know. I, I was struggling. You just said it. I'm thinking yeah. like, what? I don't know if I yeah. can answer that. Well,
1: see, and, and is that, and, you may need to see a therapist. <laughs> but,
0: and, and again, just
2: in terms of normalizing. So again, not that I, you know, am in a crisis mode or I'm suicidal, but am I? Do I have the things in place to allow me to be my best self? Mm-hmm. That's all mm-hmm. that outpatient mm-hmm. therapy is on mm-hmm. one level. It's those tools and techniques, and I want to be very specific about that because it sounds like it's wishy-washy. But on one one level, it's just this part of us, this part of being a human Mm -hmm. that has to deal with all this world. Are there things that we know that allow us to be better as we communicate with our partners, our colleagues, Mm -hmm. that we deal with emotionality? So, yeah, if we don't have basic things like that, then we probably would benefit from being in a process that allows us to, to grow in those areas simply to be who we want to be.
1: You brought up a a number of things that I wanted to address. Absolutely. Thank you. Um, You brought up clinical justice and then, which I thought was very interesting. um, It's more like a legal term versus a medical term Mm -hmm. when you said that. So it signaled something to me. Then you said cultural ramifications of Mm -hmm. um, what that looks like for black men and boys and culturally um, how they've been, um, I guess, um, raised or inoculated into manhood or boyhood so that plays a huge part in how they seek treatment if they do seek treatment but I was thinking about um, Scott's statement and I was thinking about the disservice sometimes we do to ourselves in community of telling someone you're strong you can get through it Mm -hmm. this is just a temporary moment you know I've heard that so many times you know This moment of Mm fast. Fix your face. Right, yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, So I don't think, I'm I'm trying to figure out where do men and boys figure the the, the distinction between that of this is a temporary moment happening right now to me. So am I making it a crisis or is it a crisis where I need to seek treatment or I need to be in therapy? Like, how does someone who does not have the cultural ineptness and tool sets? Mm Um, to say that to themselves, to say, because I think you're talking, in, 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 and I'm going to frame this in a way that it may not sound politically correct, but it's very classist. Because someone who's mm. educated, we can make those type of distinctions between ourselves. Mm. Someone who's not been introduced to the medical or a mental health field or area, mm. the everyday stressors of living in an urban community, um, dealing with... If you're going to have enough food for today, if yeah. you're going to be able to go to school today, mm-hmm. um, um, will I be stopped by the police? Like the everyday things that they deal with in, from the radius of where they leave their home yes. to the five or 10 block radius, that the don't. stressors deal with yeah. that, mm-hmm. you know? So how do you, how do they make sense of this is just normal? This is my everyday normal life. See,
2: I, I think that, and I appreciate that. And I love uh, the opportunity to clarify, uh, to be critiqued, uh, and to sort of expand the conversation. So two things that I'll say just about that frame, clinical justice. Part of the attempt was to really, again, infiltrate our culture so that it makes it easier to make this sort of connection. So Mm -hmm. we know we've heard of racial justice, social justice, Mm -hmm. economic justice, environmental justice. It doesn't take too much to actually think about some sort of association between those areas and a sense of justice, right? Mm -hmm. I can talk Mm -hmm. about that. But clinical justice at its core just means, right, the extent to which your mental, emotional, uh, well-being is thought of in a way uh, that society and/or systems take seriously mm-hmm. from a justice perspective. So that's just the attempt again, and certainly not perfect. But in terms of this whole idea about class, and I, you know, because I, I want please
1: you know, when you talk about because when you say racial justice and um, medical justice, right, the healthcare system, sure, and people say everyone has the right to. Access health care. Everyone has the right to a fair trial. Yes. So clinical justice, when you're saying that term thing, so does everyone have the right to mental health? Yes. Access. That's the argument. And so I.
2: So, again, I was really going to pivot. See, for me, uh, working class, uh, the average brother on the block um, Mm -hmm. understands the argument real simple. When you say, given all those things you just mentioned, if we say that race matters in this. In this society, that being first fired, uh, last hired, yeah. poor economic incomes, uh, outcomes, criminal justice outcomes, unless we think that our people are psychopaths, mm-hmm. then the idea that we wouldn't be, as young folks say, feeling some type of way about those things is to actually not be responsible to those same communities. So right, I think it's right. the reverse. We mm-hmm. cannot be talking to our people who have to deal with all those stressors mm-hmm. and not expect, right? That at some point that it will create some sort of foothold in their in their soul, in their interiority. Right. So for me, it's at its core, the idea of linking uh, the questions and concerns about mental health with what historically has been just thought of as social and political political economy or even data. Mm -hmm. So what you just Mm -hmm. talked about, just to sort of frame it. So for me. Trauma-informed care would be, you know, sort of language yeah, that everybody yeah, uh, yeah. kind of takes for granted. <laughs> but, also, you know, I'm, I'm happy to talk about it clinically, but uh, so two things. One, there's always this concern for us to not pathologize our people, right? right? right. To your point, right? right. So you know, da, da, da. Because pathologizing our people, you know, what is the concern about early identification versus early labeling? Yeah. yeah again, things yeah, that we have to yeah. think about because, again, historically, the system has not been geared towards our favor. Mm-hmm. But having said that, uh, how can we not, again, assume that these types of, uh, and I'm you know, very much interested in having this conversation, that the impact of these things does not have an impact in how we get uh, concerns about ourselves, mm. concerns about our family, concerns about our legacy, concerns about our ancestors. So our artists and intellectuals, just as an example, have been the ones who've been the best at this. I mean, our writers have been the ones who've given the most Uh, complicated, nuanced, psychological perspectives on men and boys in our community, right? The reality was, you know, uh, Black Rage was written in 1968. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. That's how long it's been since there's been, you know what I mean, some attempt to theoretically and clinically talk about, and there's a lot of things wrong with that. So we just have not, for a number of different reasons, right, Uh, for fear of being pathologizing our people, for fear of the ramifications of that, not said that all these stressors and outcomes, negative outcomes, Uh, have an actual potential impact. Why? Because we're human. So that's the thing that, to my knowledge, is beyond class and has everything to do with a community uh, that suffers from racism, classism, and and a number of different things. And to my knowledge, it's one of the underdeveloped areas uh, uh, when it comes to uh, the the things that we need to be doing. So, And that's me trying not to just stay in my clinical lane because, trust me, (laughs) I've had a long history uh, of working and you know being fascinated and frightened about you know masculinity yeah. and men for quite
1: some time. Yeah, yeah it's uh, another discourse. Essentially, because I'm glad you brought up Black Rage because I read it in grad school. <laughs> <laughs> it created um, a whole other trauma for yeah, me yeah. reading that, and I was because I was like, well, wow, that book was written in the '70s for the, in the '70s, correct?" Mm-hmm, '68, I think. Yeah. 69. And when I read before that in before grad time. school, <laughs> <laughs> four <laughs> okay. And I was the only black male in the class, yeah. and it just caused another trauma because white women were trying to empathize with me. <laughs> like, well, it's, it's okay. And I'm like, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> this is bringing up a whole other set of issues, like trauma yes. for me. Yes. But I'm glad you brought that text up. Um, wait, wait, before we okay. before
0: we move on, just real quick, since we were talking about uh, masculinity, sure. there's a term that I saw on your site.
1: Masculine therapy.
0: Yes. Can you explain? <laughs> I saw that same. Like, wh- first of all, why so, have we never heard of this before? And what is it? And why do you? Would you how do you use it yes. um, as a technique in your therapy? Yes,
2: it's it's. <laughs> yeah. So no, it's a wonderful question. Uh, you know, briefly, I'll let you know that I'm a person who uh, is a feminist. Um, okay. Was raised by uh, so, for example, real briefly by I went to Oberlin College and. I've always been fascinated by men and boys, but at that particular time was there when uh, Bell Hooks was there and Chandra Mahanchi and literally Mm -hmm. was, you know, a student at at Bell's Feet. So she was my long-term mentor. I've written about her and all that stuff. But the things that she was doing with uh, women and girls at Mm -hmm. the time made me want to do the same thing (laughs) with men and boys. So I started organizing men's group when I was an undergrad. So the point was that I became extremely fascinated by the potential and power of a gender analysis as it applied to men. Yeah. For example, it was the first joke that a guy uh, when I was an undergrad asked me, he said, uh, imagine if men and boys went to sleep for a week. He said, 90% of all violence on the earth would end. And I was like, and looked at him like he was crazy, but then I thought about it, right? Mm-hmm. So it just started this whole process. So to, 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 to get at your answer a very short way, so for me, the idea, so women's studies and gender analysis at its core uh, raised to the forefront, you know, uh, the, the importance of having particular lens on gender, but primarily women's issues. So, mm-hmm. it, 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 and obviously we know the evolution of women's studies and you know, first <laughs> wave and second wave. Yeah, yeah. And at some point, right. Women of color said that, you know, this lens is a white gaze and it just doesn't apply to us. Mm-hmm. Right. And so, you know, second and third wave feminism was very different with all that being said, the, the, the contributions of the women's movement is it absolutely brought gender to the forefront. And from that became this birth of men's rights and men's studies I can talk a lot about that. But what I would say is so masculinist therapy uh, at its core takes a feminist analysis, but puts men at center. In other words, I uh, uh, have a long history of working in the feminist movement, but the idea of treating men as objects and not subjects was at some point something I would refuse to do. And so uh, masculinist therapy at its core says that men are the subjects of analysis, Mm -hmm. right, not the objects of analysis. And takes into consideration gender and masculinity in ways that, you know, femininity never could, uh, or never would, because that was never the population that they were interested in. Now, interesting enough, and I'll just say this, and there's a lot more to say about that theoretically and methodologically. But uh, men who come in, you know, they read that term, and the first thing they think they they go come in and do is talk bad about women, <laughs> and I, you know, and it becomes one of the. Uh, uh, you know, most, uh, jarring things because I, again, am a feminist, uh, when it comes to analysis at my core, but what it means is that I take, uh, gender, uh, masculinist therapy means everything, uh, every opportunity I have to assess, uh, gender and how it impacts a man, how he views his body, how he views his, uh, you know, uh, we go everywhere, right? So performance issues, uh, uh, a number of different sort of screens, for example, just to figure out what are the, the actual ideas and attitudes they have about gender that might be a stressor. So, those guys, for example, that come in uh, uh, thinking that women are the source of their problems, right? That's a particular gender lens, right? About ideas and expectations about women. It also ends up being a particular gender lens about their own ideas about masculine and sexuality, right? And so, the extent to which they end up being homophobic uh, and having hyper uh, sexual sort of ideas. All those things end up possibly being risk factors or protective factors. Uh, what I say is, for example, especially when I train, uh, you know, younger clinicians that you know, sort of three A's. You know, you have to be uh, an archaeologist, you have to be uh, an architect, and then you have to be an accountant. Mm-hmm. So as an archaeologist, you got to, you know, in the earth and digging up stuff, trying to figure out what's there. Right. And there's a lot of history taking that. The architect is that from that you develop a sort of idea of what's going on, and you've got to build out a treatment plan. You have to build out something that makes sense, that has a foundation. And the count is that you just have to, over time, make sure that you're following the things and checking and make sure that there's progress and benchmarks and all that sort of stuff. So that's just the structure of any sort of good clinician. But as a person who specializes with men in terms of this whole issue of, of gender, I say there's at least three things that you know uh, apply or are an easy sort of frame for me to screen men. And that's has to do with ideas about... Uh, uh, the three sort, of, three sort of P's. The man's ability to provide for somebody, the ability to protect themselves, and the ability to pleasure someone. And those three P's, I'm just saying, are real easy gender things. One, because so many men on this first uh, variable of provider, have, their sense of self is very much connected with ideas about employment and be, you know, mm-hmm. being six, the breadwinner. All and, that sort of yeah. stuff. So that's gender, right? Absolutely, gender. You go to protect. <clears throat> Some of that is connected with the idea of protecting family. And stuff like that. But so many ideas that men struggle around and i not even say image around is the issues around their body and abilities to, you know, constantly comparing themselves to other men. And so we don't trust a lot of men. Hmm. And so there's a lot of trauma, for example, that happens. And so that's why now the UNC and all that sort of stuff and blood sports, this profound tension become between blue collar masculinity, white collar masculinity. So this whole idea about hmm. what does it mean to protect One'self, Mm -hmm. Which is really much connected with issues of trust and and control in general. Mm -hmm. And this last area is just to to pleasure. Uh, A lot of men, uh, despite what we, you know, want to share uh, in public, have a lot of concerns about their body issues, about Mm -hmm. being able to please someone, all of which are related to Gender, you know, what is a man supposed
0: right, to do? Right. Hierarchical, hetero, you know. Uh, yeah. And, and who can you who? talk to? You can't really talk to your boys nah. about it, and you can't talk to your woman you. about it. Yes. So yeah, that yes. I, that makes sense. Okay, mm.
1: I get it. So so tell us more about the Center for Boys and Men. Like what what um. Why the center? Where is it located? (laughs) (laughs) And how can those who are seeking your services um, find you? No, I appreciate the question. So just briefly, so the Center for Men and Boys
2: is our uh, community engagement outreach work from what we do. Mm -hmm. Uh, As I was talking uh, a little bit, maybe too much about it because I'm so focused on the clinical side because it's really important, but uh, you know, we have not, uh, my caseload has been, you know, pretty, uh, full for quite some time. So really wow. don't have to struggle full for that. Uh, but the reality is, uh, while that gives me purpose, uh, passion and peace, we know that that's just at the micro level, mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. working with men and boys, working with, uh, uh their, their families and their, uh, relationships, mm-hmm. you know, is really, really important. Having said that, we really need to do things to change the culture. And so one of the things that mm-hmm. male behavior health has historically been known for a lot of uh, major ev- events and initiatives. And mm-hmm. so we thought there was an opportunity to kind of separate the clinical side okay. f- from the community engagement side. So the God. Center for Men okay. and Boys right now, and this is new, so this is something we just uh, launched. So it only exists within the context of what we're doing. Okay. But it exists within the context of our initiative. So we have mm-hmm. two you know, uh, major initiatives, one that's starting this, <laughs> this yeah. uh, weekend, uh, called Brothers in Stride, which okay. is really designed to address uh, both our physical and mental health. Okay. Again, all these things come from my clinical interaction. One of the things, I'll just be real quick, uh, that came, uh, no surprise, right, mm-hmm. that we know that our physical health is connected with our mental health. And so yeah. even during a pandemic and when it was cold, one of the things I would always encourage men was to sort of, you know, still be active. Yeah. And yeah. these brilliant men would always, you know, take it, you know, uh, overboard and transform their lives and get off of, you know, their diabetes and medication, all that sort of stuff. Yeah. But then what we know is that, you know, uh, in addition to that, <clears throat> in addition to, the stigma of mental health, there's some stigma about being outdoors and in nature. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And what we know from studies is literally being outside in nature you know, for 10 minutes has ability to sort of you know, reduce some of the symptoms associated with anxiety and depression. Okay. And so our, uh, the more we researched it, and you may or may not know that Walk uh, with a Doc is this international program mm-hmm. started here in Columbus, Ohio by a brilliant uh, cardiologist. So we mm-hmm. consult with them, and they literally have walking support groups in almost every city around the world. And again, uh, very important, but things that, you know, minorities in general and African-American folks in particular don't do. Right. Mm -hmm. Uh, We don't walk out in nature. That's not a part of. Right. Mm -hmm. And what's disturbing about that, um, just in terms of talking about this initiative, one, we know what the the consequences of being in these, you know, you know, these days a person's zip code can kind of. Determine their lifestyle, life chance and anything else. So getting out of urban environments where there's oftentimes just no peace. Yeah. Yeah. Right. What our people have not had. uh, And it sort of hurts me to think about is just peace. Right. The opportunity to just go and just calm things down. Mm -hmm. And we can talk about that when it comes to our young folks. So this initiative, you know, this city does a great job of uh, focusing on the walk, for example. Mm -hmm. But there's an opportunity to say that walking can be a lifestyle and a way of life. And for, for old men like me that's, you know, not going to be running and jumping, you know, mm-hmm. walking is one of the things <laughs> that we can do. So that's one of the major initiatives that we're starting this weekend. It's going to be every Saturday, 10, 10 a.m. Please, you know, visit us at BrothersInStride.com. But those are the types of initiatives that we're doing at Center for Men and Boys. And I we, love what, that. What's the, what's the date? So we start uh, this Saturday, May 14th. Uh, we're alternating between uh, Metro Parks and City Parks. So starting mm-hmm. off this week at Sharon Woods, we'll be at Black... Blacklick Woods, Olentangy Park, and I think the last one is uh, uh, something out, what you call it. So there's, you know, so literally we're alternating. And here's the big thing. So uh, during the course of the summer, because this is a 12-week initiative, uh, we're going to have these major community events. So these are stride walks. So right. stride with your pastor is going to be in a month. Right. After that, yeah. it's going to be stride with your family. So you yeah, can bring so them. right? You know, bring your family and kids. Black folks have just never had the opportunity to be out walking in nature. We, you know, got jokes about bears and, you know, all that sort of stuff. (laughs) And the reality is we are people from nature. Yeah. Right. And you can go your whole life and never, you know, be in the hood and never even know that there's such thing as Metro Park. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And so, yeah, we're really excited about that, uh, especially coming out of COVID.
1: Yeah, I'm glad you shared that, and um, I hope a lot of people take you up on that initiative and start meeting. So it's every Saturday, right?
2: Starting every Saturday, Saturdays, ten a.m. Ten a.m. Just right. an hour through, the, an hour. Summer. And through what's the, the summer. And what's the website, just in case? Brothersinstride.com.
1: Brothersinstride.com.
2: Brothersinstride.com. dot Okay. Um, they can also you know access that at the
1: centerformenandboys.com mm-hmm.
2: under our initiatives tab.
1: Okay. Now, will there be food and or you know? Because you well, know, we, we, we did, I ain't coming with well, the food. It's you a know? wonderful thing. So, if anybody <laughs> wants to help
2: with those in-kind donations, you say, Lord. <laughs> so <laughs> you know, people you want know, to come out. Like, you give me come up here ten
1: o'clock in the morning. You know?
2: <laughs> well, no, those are so. Please, please come. The idea of us walking and yeah, I, well, that's, we that's have a, every expectation that those yeah. things actually will will be there. So they can
1: fellowship it, afterward, right? Oh
2: yeah. Well, th- that's gonna be there. So it will be a little <laughs> you know beginning part where we'll talk and talk yeah. about health and mental health. Then the walking, and then some other <laughs> stuff. But I love that. I love that. Yeah. So, so please don't bring you know no brown bags. Or right. like that. <laughs> <laughs> That'll come. We got to get the Metro Parks used to us it. But I do. I,
1: right. <laughs> All these people black, by people black people, yeah. right? Yeah, exactly. Walking, walking, walking by black. black. Yeah. <laughs> I, I'm glad you brought up too about getting out of the neighborhood. Um yes. I've always made the argument that um, sometimes people who live in um, stressed communities or um, anxiety, anxious communities, uh, create a collective um, communal idea around stress and anxiety. So I call it a collective anxiety or collective stress, mm-hmm. right? But everyone is on high mm-hmm. alert yes. um, because of the community that they live in. Yes. So when you said that, I was like, oh, wow, I've been thinking about that concept yes. for a while. So to get out of that community and to go someplace else, Helps you bring it, yeah,
2: and, and and it's sad, uh, you know. So I'm from Toledo, Ohio. Uh, we've been here, me and my wife. Uh, she's a physician since 2013, so nine wow. years, right? But when we started this process of you know building out and uh, uh, this uh, brothers in stride, there's are black men from Columbus, Ohio, brilliant professionals who've never been to a metro park. Wow. And that's just talking about professionals, folks. So to your point, yeah, right, if yeah. you're talking about being in the hood where I was raised, the idea of walking out in nature, come on. Yeah. yeah. So this, and this is also the part when it comes to mental health and the racialization of that. So we unfortunately think that certain things are white thing. Yeah. We think that you know self-harming behavior or suicidality is a white thing until we start seeing these numbers rise within our own community. And yeah. oftentimes we're always there. We just didn't look at it. Mm-hmm. So the same thing when it comes to these health things. That, again, should be for us, mm-hmm. right? But we just have never, and again, I just want to say it's a racialized identity thing, uh, which is part of it because some of this is access to resources. You know, you, get, you know, what are the bus routes to Sharon Woods? All those things that, you know, as a program, we got kind of to have to be real intentional about, for example, because we, we want to bring young folks. But that's the point, yeah. that we just don't have those spaces to decompress. Mm-hmm. We live in these environments, as you just said, where it's just go, go, go. We consult and, you know, have uh, had wonderful partnerships with uh, Columbus City Schools and other schools. And one of the things that I uh, talk with teachers about and do this thing called hip-hop therapy Mm. is imagine what you're, I know, right, because they're there, but if you're dealing with all that sort of stuff and hip-hop and all that stuff, go, 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 and then the bell rings at whatever, seven, eight o'clock in the morning, what do you think that you're dealing with on the inside? Mm. Right. Yeah, Mm. yeah. So part of the calming, you know, techniques, part of the ideas of, of, of... teaching uh, teachers and our young folks how to regulate their mood and their emotions is literally just the precursor to learning because you can't do that when everything's hyper vigilant, hyper, right. And yeah. focused yeah. and you yeah. just go, go, yeah. go, go, go. Right. Yeah. Um, and so read, how can you read and focus? Mm-hmm. If your mind is jumping like, you know, monkey brain, you know, yeah. I, I do that with the younger <laughs> guy. So you're 100% right. I think that, um, you know, the idea of mental health at its core, uh, you know, we use these things called mindfulness and all that stuff, yeah. is really how do we create, yeah. you know, these opportunities to slow things down, mm-hmm. to have peace, right? Mm-hmm. At its core, therapy is about just learning the tools not to be reacting to things. And when you're in this sort of hypervigilant mode, you're constantly just responding, you're triggered, and so that you don't have the peace and stability just to be able to, to do what you want to do. Yeah. And that's yeah, what, you know, yeah. something like these little breaks uh, can offer. And there should be a number of div- different things. But, uh, yes, these are precisely the types of things that uh, we're excited to to help change the culture around.
1: Huh? I like that you said about triggers and learning what your triggers are, knowing what they are. Cause mm-hmm. We instantly go into fight or flight. Absolutely. You know, um, is this a moment where I should be fighting or is the a moment where I should I be fighting or... Um, how am I reacting? Why am I reacting? What's What's the trigger here? Mm-hmm. This is really brilliant. How can people get in touch with you? Contact so you know sure. parents, parents who are listening, or a man who's listening right now said, um, Are you taking new clients? So that's the new. Yeah. That's the first question.
2: <laughs> <laughs> so yes, and it's because precisely we're in this mode now. Um, Got to the point where I couldn't keep making the argument that, you know, men and boys need to uh, see uh, therapists and then not make myself available. So there's two ways that we've addressed that. One, another website. We created (laughs) uh, BlackMentalHealthAmerica.com. Okay. And so literally uh, any person can go to uh, this website. And just Mm -hmm. for a hire, we're doing it for the nation. And you can click on any of our cities, Toledo, Columbus, Youngstown, and you can find the black female and black male therapists in your city. Oh, wow. So that was precisely okay. because I said, okay. look, I'm tired of not being able to see people, and yeah. I want to make sure that they have access. Because not everybody has the ability to go to psychology today and filter and
1: all that exactly. Sort of
2: stuff. Exactly, yeah. So either blacktherapistohio.com or BlackMenHealthOhio.com is where anybody free of charge can just go to and find a list of black therapists in their cities. For me, and uh, Male Behavioral Health, they can just go to our website, okay. uh, male behavioral Health, which is mbhinc.com. Okay. And that's mbhinc.com, or they can call our office at... 614-360-9702.
0: Okay. 614-360-9702. Now in terms of uh cuz I'm sure there's some people out there who may be interested but are concerned about the cost or if they don't have insurance. So can you talk a little bit about yes. in terms of if you don't have health insurance or yes. if you do, how can you still get can you still speak to someone and how does that work?
2: Yeah. So at this particular point, and trust me, is
0: um,
2: in addition to all the other stuff that I'm doing, I'm very much invested with uh, and committed to building an infrastructure supporting clinicians, because mm. you might be surprised that the trend now is not even to accept uh, insurance. People are just fee for service. They only accept oh, people wow. who can pay. Yeah, and so because mm-hmm. you come on a lot of debt, and so the moment that I went that route, because I could easily charge, you know, one hundred fifty dollars, is the moment that I don't see the average brother right because right. the average brother just doesn't have that. Yeah. So it's a problem, and I feel that we have to absolutely yeah. address and yeah. deal with, and we got to right. find other means so any funders that are listening to be able to provide spaces for like groups and stuff like that that are not just based upon insurance Mm -hmm. but yes i do take insurance um uh since the pandemic have not charged any copays or whatever Mm -hmm. person's um uh what do you call it insurance pays is what i I charge okay um and so we are on on most panels um and are able to take the majority of uh, insurance at
1: this time that's That's awesome. awesome that's really awesome Mr. I want to thank you again for joining us. This yes, is a r- insightful conversation. And I just wish that so many of us would seek out, you know, ways to heal ourselves um, mentally, um, emotionally as well. Um, but is there anything parting words you want to leave with us um, that we should, um, for someone who may have some serious signs, yes, um, is there like three or, or five things that you should say um, if, if someone is exhibiting these type of behaviors or have any type of thoughts um, to immediately contact someone or seek someone to speak to. Yeah.
2: So, no, I, I love that question. I really appreciate it. So um, the, the three sort of main things when it comes to risk and lethality are psychosis, suicidality mm-hmm. and homicidality. OK. Uh, so certainly if anybody uh, is, you know, who suffers from severe mental illness, you know, are not on their medications, feel like they're not on their baseline, you know, please, they need to see up. Suicidality, there's a long continuum of that. And it's really important. I'll just be brief. Is Sometimes people think that they just need to talk to somebody when they you know feel like they go in it. But it just doesn't happen that way. Typically, it starts off with thoughts like I don't want to be here. People mm. want, you know, these sort of passive thoughts to more active thoughts about, you know, and then risky behavior. So if you find yourself on and then gestures and then attempts, but if you find yourself in any way on a sort of suicidal continuum, right, I'd say, uh, please get some help. This last thing I think is really important for, you know, men and boys, but particularly our community around homicidality Mm -hmm. because homicidality in this, uh, you know, is thought of uh, is not a mental health thing. uh, Even though, for example, you can be psychiatrically admitted, but the reason why it's important for us as a community to talk about it is because we just know what's happening in terms of this escalation of, of gun violence. Yeah. And once again, what I would say is, you know, again, to think of our people as being involved in things like killing or being killed and not think of that as a mental health thing is to kind of mm. think of our folks as uh, as psychopaths. So mm. I am w- mm. saying to men, if you are thinking about hurting someone else, right? if you feel as if these issues that she's entanglements that you've gotten in have gotten you to the point where you're, you know, having thoughts about her, you know, you need to have to see somebody because again, there's no goodwill hunting for us. We end Mm. up going to jail. We don't, you know, our brilliance and stuff like that doesn't get, you know, picked up by, you know, some, right. And so our brilliance and our pain ends up being uh, stuff that only the criminal justice system ends up addressing. So we have to pay attention to that because, and I'll just say this last thing is, Anger and rage are typically the only tools that men and boys have as a, a form of uh, of an expression yeah. about what they're doing in mm-hmm. terms of trauma, and it's just uh, there's a lot that I can say about that. So uh, we have to pay attention to uh, that because it's also indicative of depression, and yeah. um, um, we just have not done enough work to really you know help men and boys clarify that. You know, you, you might think that you're just being a, a butthole or Mm-hmm. asshole, but the reality is, uh, you might be suffering from depression or anxiety wow. and the new scales, for example, demonstrate that clearly when we use different measures to, uh, you know, we think about internalizing and externalizing behaviors, the kind of, you know, stereotype men and boys, the reality is that the newer scales of depression, when they take externalizing behaviors like, you know, alcohol and drugs and things like agitation and irritability, the rates of depression almost, uh, what do you call it? Um, um, uh, remove And in some ways, men and boys are higher. So, again, mm-hmm. if the boys are the people that you think are just acting like a butt, right, the reality is you might be depressed. We just, the internalization, uh, the experience of uh, mental health and the expression of mental health are different based upon gender. Mm-hmm. And historically, we've used d- the wrong measures. And I'll mm-hmm. be one last example. So you can do a trauma measure and never even include a measure on race. And so that you would never even capture the experiences right, of yeah. black people around yeah, right. trauma. Same thing when it comes to depression. If you don't have any measures that kind of get at male behaviors that you don't then see them as suffering from mood disorders. Mm-hmm. So the reality is, again, if you, you know, to answer your question, these issues around suicidality, but also even hurting folks, those yeah. might be indications, OK, that you're not doing well.
1: Okay. Awesome.
0: Thank you so much. Thank man. you so it's much. Uh, the conversation. Really we, um, appreciate that. Yeah, we can't thank you enough, Mr. Woods, for coming in and speaking with us and helping us understand this issue. And 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 we'll hopefully, you know, somebody will, will, will be able to um, take something from this and, and maybe seek out some therapy that wouldn't have otherwise, uh, hopefully. And uh, for everybody <laughs> else out there, uh, we want to thank you again for joining us. You can find this episode on Dispatch.com or wherever you get your podcast. And please consider supporting local journalism by becoming a subscriber. And until our next episode, be sure to check back for the next installment of In Black and White podcast series. Thanks.